Welcome to another episode of the Map Escaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Todd Slynn. Todd is the VP of Technology at a geospatial consultancy called Locana. And today on the podcast, we're talking about what it takes to be a geospatial consultancy. What are they interested in? How do they approach emerging markets versus mature markets? And also, what are they looking for when they think about employing people? So what is it like to be a geospatial consultant and what do consultancies look for when hiring? The reason why I wanted to make this particular episode for you about geospatial consultancy is because I think a lot of people might end up in that career path. And I think for me personally, it would have been really, really helpful to have a deeper understanding of like, as a business, what is a geospatial consultancy looking for? How are they thinking about approaching new markets? How are they thinking about creating new products and and services? Why is it that they're going after these particular industries? And I also think it would be really helpful for some people who are thinking about going down this path, considering a job as a geospatial consultant, to understand what a consultancy is looking for. What kind of skills do they value? What, what are their expectations of employees? So that's a little bit of background behind this episode. I really hope it's helpful. It's important to note that Locana contributed to covering the cost of making this episode. These episodes take a significant amount of time to create, and I really appreciate their generosity in helping make this one possible. Hey, Todd, welcome to the podcast. So you are the the VP of technology, which is an amazing title at a company called Locana. And today on the podcast, I want to talk about geospatial consultancy, what it means to be a geospatial consultancy as a business, and what it means to work in a geospatial consultancy as a consultant. So in my mind, to Different, but but very, very related topics. Before we get into all that, though, could you please introduce yourself to the audience and perhaps let us know how you got involved in GIS Geospatial? Sure. I'm based here in Bellingham, Washington, which is up in the northwest corner of the contiguous U.S. I live on ancestral Nooksack Semiamu lands, and um, I'm enjoying this new thing we have called uh, Live Where You Play. So um, I came to GIS a bit as a second or an afterthought. I was a graduate student uh, studying civil engineering with an emphasis on transportation planning and traffic engineering. I asked my graduate student advisor when I was nearing my graduation date, you know, what are the skills and tools that I needed to be equipped with to make sure that I was ready for the field and ready for the, the, the profession as it was heading into the future? And my advisor, and this was in the early 90s when GIS was transitioning kind of to the PC and the desktop. And he said, well, you really need to um, check out this GIS thing. And it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a fringe technology or a fringe tool right now, but it's going to be very soon kind of the core of the tool set for how we plan things going forward. So with that, I went and I took a series of courses and got some skills and it just so turned out that when I graduated, there weren't many jobs available in transportation planning. And so I was uh, hired on to become a GIS programmer analyst for a large municipal enterprise GIS program, one of the first, I guess, around the country um, in, in how it was conducted and very systematically and very centrally organized. And uh, so I got a kind of a jump into GIS kind of in a, in a big program and, and learned a lot along the way. So, um, so, so from there, I spent a few years kind of helping build a big enterprise GIS capability and then decided I wanted to get back into the transportation area 
and found a job in consulting where I could apply GIS to transportation. That's the early days. I appreciate that. Hey, do, do you think that advice sort of holds true today as well, like in terms of learn GIS, because it's, uh, it's the future, it's, it's where we're going, and it's a, a very marketable skill? Do, do you think that that's still true today? I do, actually, and probably more now than ever. Um, we have a better understanding of how location and geography and a sense of place really factors into understanding problems and identifying and designing solutions. So I would say that you know, in the 30 years um, that I've been in my career, it has never been more true that that would be very good advice that I would my, myself pass along. I, I guess the reason why I ask that question is because I'm constantly hearing from companies that are looking to democratize this, you know, make it easy, make it available to everyone. And, and I guess that's where that question was coming from, is that in a world where people are working really, really hard to democratize this, make it available to everyone, yeah, is it still like the future? Is it still this marketable skill that we, we should be focusing on? There could be a very long answer to that question. I think that, you know, we're always going to be needing to understand new contexts. We're always going to be needing to incorporate new data sets. So it's a very dynamic space, uh, the GIS space. So I would say that it may, you know, shift from, you know, being a desktop GIS analyst to being a more of a web GIS developer or configuring, you know, web Based tools, but there's always going to be a need to, you know, match very uh, specific contextual data to the problem set that you're considering or the the users that you're trying to serve and help. Well, that was a fantastic answer. I think you did a really good job of sort of narrowing it down to the core as well. But what are we actually doing when we're doing GIS when we're working with spatial data? And yeah, I think you nailed that. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to remember that and use it too. So, so you're working at a consultancy now. We mentioned the name earlier on, uh, a company called uh, Locana. What does Locana do? What, what, is, what do you do when you're doing consultancy? Who do you work for? So we work for a variety of customers, and we focus on a few industries that we feel we understand well. Um, we have you know, demonstrated expertise, and you know, it's easier to oftentimes continue good work and work from a, a position of strength when you're growing a consultancy business. So we tend to kind of maintain that right balance between focus and kind of opportunistic expansion. So currently and historically, we've been focused on infrastructure-based industries, so utilities, governments. And so that's kind of one leg of our consulting business in in terms of our our customer and industries that we focus on. And the other two are commercial customers, and that includes startup organizations, um, folks that are looking to take a product to market and need a team and and we can kind of plug in as the geospatial component to that team. And then also the place that's near and dear to me where I spent a good 10 years of my career focusing on is international development, humanitarian assistance under the umbrella of what we call social benefit. So so we do essentially utilities, state, local, federal government, commercial customers, and then the social benefit organizations. Which one of those three legs, as you described them, those three different sort of customer groups, which one, or, or maybe they all are, is there any one that's more mature than the others? Well, I would say that the utility space is, is very mature. And well, let me explain why I use that word. So I, when I think of a mature market, I would say that there are standards have been have emerged and have been developed and adopted. And that allows for specialized software and tools to be built on top of, you know, the established platforms. 
So you get a lot of kind of off the shelf features and functions and applications that are, you know, kind of ready to plug into a task. You also have a very robust consulting services ecosystem. So there's a very robust competition. There is also, you know, the beginning of commoditization in certain aspects of, of the space. And then you have, you know, a sophisticated and informed buying customer base. So you're able to engage in, in kind of conversations around, you know, a very solid understanding of the problem they're trying to solve or the needs they have or the requirements that they're trying to satisfy on behalf of their end users. So um, it's like they know their problem. They know kind of the, the variety of solutions that are available to them that they want to help use to address that problem. And they can engage in a very sophisticated way to kind of negotiate how they can get that help. Okay, so assuming now that the other two markets that you're talking about, they're, they're different from that, so they're, they're less mature. How do your approaches differ when you're, you're approaching the, these, these different, like a, a mature market, like what you're describing with the utilities companies that you work for, and these, these other markets that you also operate in? What are the big differences in terms of your approaches to, to those two different markets? So obviously, in these less mature markets, things are going to be less well-defined. Um, the problems are still under discovery, and the solutions are most likely needing to be bespoke. So we're doing a lot more custom development. We're using kind of more of the building blocks of kind of the pure IT than proprietary platforms that have already kind of been there, done that, solved this problem a thousand times for a hundred different customers. So it's much more of a consultative, if you will, process where you need to you know, kind of draw out the requirements from a customer. You need to you know, look at the universe of opportunities in terms of which technologies you bring to addressing those requirements. And then you know, oftentimes when we're in a, an international development environment, which is in a country or a region or location that doesn't have robust IT networks or bandwidth or, or so forth, you need to consider kind of the constraints of the environment that you're solving for in, in within. So generally it's, you know, in the summary, it's a lot more custom, a lot more of, you know, the kind of that front end, define the requirements, design the solution, evaluate the appropriate technologies. And so it's, in my mind, it's, there's a lot more creative space and just kind of with my personality, that's where I like to play is, you know, kind of a blank canvas and, and be able to, to really kind of paint in the picture completely. And I'm less of a Lego builder and more of like a, a blank canvas watercolorist, I guess. It's, it's interesting because I think a lot of people would be, um, it would be intimidating, the blank canvas, you know, where, where do I start? In a mature market, like you were describing before, okay, the customer knows what they want and you know what you can deliver. You've both done it a hundred times before and it's, more sort of cookie cutter and yeah we can build on top of it we can we can add things and we can innovate but the innovations i guess aren't the the big step changes there's a lot more security in that and the, this other market that you're describing it sounds i don't know if i'm doing a great job of describing this but if, it sounds like it's more throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks it sounds like there's a really sort of heavy education burden at the start and a discovery burden like what what, what do you want when you say you want a map of that what what do you mean when you say that you have spatial data, what, what are you talking about? Is it PDFs? Is it these other things? Because they might not know. And I guess my question with, with all this is, how as a consultancy do you decide where to spend your time, where to focus? You have a limited number of resources. Where, where do you put it? Do you put it in the, 
the known or or the unknown? Well, we like to strike a balance. So we understand that a lot of our core customer industries are very, in terms of their stability, they have enterprise funding. You know, if it's a utility, people are always going to need their energy and their electricity. So it's very good for a consulting business to have a strong foundation in a very stable industry. And then within that, we're always looking for what's coming next or what trends are affecting those customers, what regulatory demands are coming down on them that they need to be responsive to. So definitely as someone who's had a small business, you want to have like what we call flywheel customers or flywheel parts of the business that just keep generating recurring business, recurring revenue, and just keep a really healthy baseline for the consulting business. And then you can start placing some bets on other emerging markets or other industries that you know may not have that same stability and less uncertainty. So what we try to do is we look at, you know, what are the mega trends out there in the world that we want to help either progress, promote, solve. So we look at things like climate adaptation or 5G adoption or the great redistribution or relocation and figure out, well, there's opportunities there. We know it because those are location intensive problems that need solutions and they're likely, you know, need some location intelligence or maps or some of what we do. And then we just try to figure out, you know, how do we get attached to that opportunity stream? How do we get into the flow? How do we meet up with the right people who are thought leaders in the space that we can collaborate with and start to identify solutions that become projects that then become business and then you know allow us to grow and, and be relevant going into the future. So it's a little bit of make sure that you're doing enough of the very strong stuff that you you know have confidence is going to be there and satisfy your your core needs as a business, but also make educated bets that are in alignment with you know, where the industries are going and where the world is going. And for us, you know, solving the problems that are most pressing right now. I think it was really interesting that you talked about these mega trends there. And then the idea of aligning the, what do people care about today? What are they likely to care about tomorrow with location intense components or, or things where you can see, like there's an obvious need for a location data here for a location component. But the interesting thing is like in this industry, we're often running around telling each other that, hey, 80% of all data has a geo component and everything happens somewhere and at some time. And when we say that, I think the underlying message is we could use this stuff anywhere. This geospatial stuff, we could just plug and play it into any industry. So how do you decide which ones are the ones to go after? So we've got these megatrends and we've got this idea that they're going to need some location intelligence. Is there anything else that you use to filter out and decide like, okay, we can add value there? Well, we're pretty rigorous around building a business case around anything. So we look at, you know, what's the addressable market? How well along on the adoption curve or the hype cycle is this industry? So we don't want to be on too far on the bleeding edge that we're doing most of the bleeding. We want to be kind of on the leading edge. So we want to make sure that our customers have arrived to the point where they understand how what we do can address their problems. So there's a fair amount of market analysis that we do. But we also, you know, want to make sure that we're aligning the work we do to our company values. And, you know, hopefully within our team, our personal values are aligning to our company values so that we're kind of coming to work and able to work on things that we feel like are making a difference and are things that we can be proud of. So we, you know, have our our own little 
Wailokana credo, if you will. And so part of that is that we want to be involved in the things that are going to help make a difference on the planet. So part of it is like being good business people. Part of it is around, you know, aligning to our values so that we're feeling good about every thing we do and every hour we, we put in at work. This might be a hard question to answer, but, but I want to try it anyway. Again, I want to take you back to this idea of mature markets and, and less mature markets. If you had to choose between building a product for a mature market or a less mature market, which one would you choose? Well, I would say that we would be strongly biased towards a mature market. We typically approach product development by applying our learnings. So when we decide to go out and build a product, we have likely solved that problem three or four or five times for a customer. And we just have realized like, wow, this is something that we can see a pattern. And this is something that we understand very well. And we, this is something that we can abstract to a point where we can make it a product that could appeal to a broad set of customers. So, so that being said, I personally like to place small bets on things that are into emerging markets or underserved markets. There's this really strange situation in industry where there is an uneven adoption with geospatial technology you know, across all industries. So some of them are very well penetrated or have high levels of adoption of geospatial technology. And I would count, you know, governments at all levels are, you know, they've got people on staff, they've, they keep up on the technology and are constantly updating and, and, and so forth. And then there are other industries and, you know, I think real estate in particular, where, you know, it's a very location, spatially intense industry, but there isn't a real strong uptake too much in the true kind of core business processes and daily activities of the people working in that industry. So what we like to do is, you know, make sure that when we develop a product, we know it well, we can execute and we know that there's a market for it and we know how to connect to those people that are willing to buy our product. But, you know, we also want to, you know, always be kind of balancing the safe and the sensible with a little bit of the, you know, let's, let's take a bit of a risk, let's place a bit of a bet, and let's see if we can catch a tiger by the tail and, and enter a new market or a less developed market and see what, what happens. So if I'm understanding you correctly, it sounds like offering bespoke services into a market would be a great way of doing market research, you know, because you're, you're being working in there at the same time, you're learning like what's working, what's not working, what are people asking for again and again and again? what promises can we make and and keep and then based on that you could you could start thinking about well which pro, which of these services could we productize and it sounds like that's what you've done in some of these mature markets that you've been involved with with for quite some time if you're going into a sort of emerging market like a less mature market would, would that be the approach that you'd take there as well yeah yeah i was going to say absolutely and you know one of the areas where we're starting to learn is in climate adaptation and you know, just the, the immense complexity around understanding the issues around climate change and the voluminous amount of data that you oftentimes require to evaluate, you know, climate risk, climate exposure, adaptive capacity, all of these kind of major issues around what climate's doing. I mean, if you're doing it at scale, it's, it's incredibly you know, complicated task. So we're learning little pieces and parts of what that looks like. And we're learning things as kind of specific and narrowly focused as, you know, vegetation management and making sure that we are 
reducing wildfire risk exposure, but we're also looking at, you know, where within a region are patterns changing, which are going to make certain crops viable or unviable, or are going to make livestock grazing areas have to move. And how is that going to create conflict with the other land uses and, and peoples and, and so forth? So, so we're learning kind of as we go these things, but we're already starting to see these patterns and these kind of abstract tools that we can hopefully, you know, bring to, to lots of different conversations and lots of different kind of problems within the space. And ultimately, you know, it could become you know, a more productized view and we can identify and curate and help serve out analysis ready data sets and, you know, so forth. So, so I guess that's a very long answer to your question. In emerging markets, we do kind of follow that same approach. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that. And, and I understand that it's not always like uh, as cut and dry and there is some nuance here and it takes time to explain it. So thank you very much for that. So let's stick with climate adaptation f- as an example. Would you want to bring all that expertise in-house? Would you want to have that internally or would you look to partner with, with people or partner with different organizations? So it's a bit of a hybrid model for us. So we partner with academic organizations, research for development organizations, uh, large international NGOs that have been working these problems for a long time. But we also need to have intelligent interfaces to those people. So we have some in-house subject matter expertise that are more focused around the technical aspects and the data aspects and less around kind of the science and the application definition and some of the the rules of, of how that science is applied to decision-making and so forth. So we definitely need to partner on, on these big issues where it requires a PhD to really understand some of the complexities in the data and some of the nuance that, um, as you described. So yeah, for us, hybrid. And you know, it's just that matter of kind of flanging into a partner organization with the right like, language, taxonomies, uh, semantics, so that we can effectively work together. So th- this might be a really great segue into these in-house experts, into the consultants that work in the, in the consultancy. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to sort of shift gears a little bit and, and talk about what it takes to be a consultant. So wh- what are you looking for as, as a consultant? So I, I guess that is the question. What, what are you looking for as a consultant? You're employing new consultants. What, what does it take to make a great consultant? What, what skills do they need? Like what, what, do they, what experience do they need to show up with? What does it take? What are you looking for? Well, as I mentioned, you know, I, I feel that consulting and having worked in a number of different environments, I really feel like consulting is the area that has the most creative space. So I think that when you are looking for a career in consulting, you need to have some level of curiosity, creativity. You need to be problem solving oriented. You need to be a self-starter. I like to say that, you know, you need to be a bit of an autodidact. You need to be able to teach yourself new things and do it effectively and efficiently so that when you're thrown a new assignment that is a novel problem that you know isn't part of the online resources, you can't duck duck go the solution to this problem. You really have to like, you know, create something new to um, address this new problem. It's it requires a lot of patience too, because you're not always going to have the project work that you want. It's not going to necessarily align to your unique interest. It's not necessarily going to be putting to use the things that you learned in school, at least not immediately. And you need to be a little bit willing to stay with the journey a bit. So you may be given some things that are, you know, going to give you that 
great core set of basic skills and it may not be the most interesting work, but it's going to give you, you know, that exposure to the things that are going to help you progress. The other thing is that as a consultant, you're going to always need to be interfacing with, or I shouldn't say always, but you're likely at some point, not too far into your career, you're going to need to be interfacing with customers and, you know, having that consultative manner where you are able to draw out the specifics about what the client's problem is and then start your process of figuring out and ideating how to solve it. So to a certain extent, you need to be a little bit gregarious and like to be around people and like to have conversations around defining a problem. That's not always the case. We have some very strong individual contributors that you know focus on one aspect of, of doing what we do. But um, in general, I think you know as a consultant, and being a rounded consultant, like having that uh, that ability to interface with clients is is important. But you know, kind of just at a basic level, you need to be curious. You need to be able to to have some ownership of your own personal development and to be able to use resources that you're given to do self directed learning. Yeah, you you need to have a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit as well, and you need to like see opportunities in the morning newspaper or in a conversation you might be having at a transit stop or whatnot. So one of the, the things about consulting as well is that it's kind of a, an endless hustle. So you're always having to kind of figure out what the next project is, who the next, next customer might be, what was the next trend in the industry that you need to be prepared to grab a hold of and, and run with. So yeah, I, you know, that was a kind of a word salad <laughs> or a word buffet of a bunch of different stuff, but hopefully you got some things in there that uh, give you a good picture of what I think makes a good consultant. Yeah, it, it, it was really interesting. So I, I come from a consultancy background myself, and a lot of what you say I can definitely identify with. I was surprised to hear you talk about the, this curiosity that you needed, because in, definitely in my experience, it's been very set. Like a lot of times the opportunity was to, to get good at this one thing and then do that one thing a lot. And it was, I guess I was working in, in these more mature markets that we talked about before, the utilities market. And there they were really interested in, in doing the same thing. It was difficult to innovate there. Do you try and align people with like, different people into the, these different markets that we've been talking about? Like uh, consultants that have perhaps a different set of skills or a different, a, a different personality to mature and, and perhaps less mature markets? Yeah. So we definitely are conscious of the type of person that's needed to satisfy a specific role on a project. And we do have projects, consulting projects that are turning the crank on things and and it can last for months or years. That being said, there almost always is the ability to innovate ways to improve the process that you're responsible for operating. So there's automation, there's scripting, there's you know building interfaces to facilitate the automation or, or running of tasks or whatnot. So you know we encourage people to innovate kind of within what may seem rote tasks that they're being given. We also keep very well attuned to people's satisfaction level with their uh, assignments. So somebody may have started with um, a particular role and they're approaching burnout and we want to make sure that we rotate them to something that's going to be satisfying to them, maintaining their interests, keeping them around, and just generally, you know, happy teammates make, you know, an easier uh, company to to hold together and, and take into the future. So we have this kind of fungibility or fluidity within our team that allow people to gravitate to the types of work that is most 
align to their constitution and interests. But like I said, I'll go back to my patience point. You know, sometimes that can't happen next Monday. Sometimes it might take a few months for us to kind of get things squared away and, and people back to something that they're really excited to be doing. So, so that makes perfect sense. But what, what would you tell like a consultant out there now that's approaching that this sort of burnout stage? How would they need to approach someone like you, for example, and say, hey, look, I'm burning out. I'm, I'm losing my enthusiasm for this. There's less motivation. How would you want them to come to you and present that? So you had time to react. Yeah. So, you know, we have a pretty good culture of having a lot of one-on-one conversations with folks. So hopefully at someone's first inkling of dissatisfaction with their job or their, their task or their role, they would bring that up in, in, in kind of that one-on-one environment. You know, as somebody who has responsibility for business development and, and helping to decide kind of what types of work we go after and what types of clients we look to work with, um, I would hope people would, you know, feel like I have an, an open chat, <laughs> chat box um, to, you know, reach out to me and, and let me know what they're interested in so that we can be, you know, identifying those types of things that are going to align to people's interests so that we have the work that are going to keep people happy and excited to be working. But, you know, in general, you know, I think it's just a matter of feeling like you're working in an open and safe environment to communicate all of your kind of concerns, fears, thoughts, desires. And I don't know that, you know, that there necessarily is a, um, a need for a more formal process than to just encourage people to you know, share what it is about their work that makes them excited that they want to do more of. And, and if something is just, you know, driving them crazy and they're dreading logging into the computer every morning, then make sure that that doesn't, uh, that doesn't go to a bad place. I just want to be really clear. Like, I don't believe that there's the, the perfect, you know, workplace, the perfect environment or, or the perfect, you know, a set of tasks all the time. I think that there's compromises here, but I guess I just wanted to hear your, ideas around that to give people some insight or if i feel like this what, what should i do what what is acceptable here i also want to ask you about this idea of, of people coming with innovation like people saying hey i think there's room for innovation here if i'm working at locana as a consultant for, for you for the company how would you want me to present my ideas like my the idea that i have that i think we could innovate the way i think we could we could do something better what what, what is it that I could do to convince you? Like, what would you be looking for? So I will look for somebody who has taken kind of that first step and shown some personal initiative to make their idea a bit real. So do a little bit of a side project to prototype something or write a little white paper to help explicitly describe kind of what their innovative idea is all about. My title as the facilitator of our technology function and what I hope to do, and I'm, I'm getting better at it every day because I'm learning more about our broad uh, and deep team at Volcana, is to help people give voice to their ideas. So we will uh, look to spin up initiatives on projects that are your ideas rather that show some promise. And this might be promise on a particular project or promise on you know, a particular new service offering that we may want to take to our customers. And we have a couple that you know are currently ongoing. We're, we're looking at how do we become more sophisticated around kind of the dashboarding solutions that we provide and how do we go beyond kind of the straight up configuration of the out-of-the-box dashboard tools. We're also looking a lot into 
you know, what are our um, suite of AI, ML, and computer vision services that we should be articulating to our customers? We've got a, a bit of a, dis, a disparate and diverse resume, but how do we coherently start talking about that and identify gaps where we can improve and, and round out what we can do there? So in general, we just need to do better at providing people the venues to raise those ideas. And that's something that we're working on. That's part of my job. And I'm looking forward to doing that. Back in the good old days, when I was working as a, as a consultant, I remember my, my team leader saying he needed consultants that could make accurate estimates. That was one of the, the big things he was looking for. So it wasn't so much you know, a particular technical skill. He needed somebody who could look at a task and say, hey, this is going to take me you know, 10 hours. This is going to take me 20 hours. Is that an important skill for you when you think about hiring a, a new consultant? Absolutely. It's probably one of the one of the top three skills that a consultant should have is to be able to to develop accurate levels of estimate for, for the work that they're being asked to do. And it's something that we try to cultivate early on when we add a new team member. And the way that we typically want to get people socialized to that is we partner them with a more senior person. We have them kind of each do an independent estimate, and then we talk through kind of the whys and the what fors of of how they came up with each other's numbers, and then that helps you know calibrate the youngster to the more senior person. However, that being said, some of our senior people still require a bit of a uh, oh how should I put this um, a factoring. So sometimes you know there's just like in their minds they don't think about all the meetings that might need to occur or the potential for you know, just unanticipated rework that's kind of inherent in any kind of software development or systems engineering. So, um, so sometimes we, you know, apply a little uh, fudge factor to, um, to get budget estimates kind of to a good place. But it's definitely a skill that uh, is, it's extremely valuable. And the earlier in your career you can acquire it, the more value you're going to be to a consulting shop. If you could hire new consultants from any kind of background, is there anything like any particular background you you would look for? Is it like the the deep tech, the programming, the development background? Is it more a, a client facing role that they came from that you're that that you're looking for? Is there anything in particular where you think, ah, okay, in a perfect world, all of our consultants would come from this background here? You know, I I don't think so. We have a pretty diverse group of folks and some of them are hardcore computing science backgrounds some of them are straight ahead geographers some of them are immigrants to technology field and have more liberal arts background or are straight up business backgrounds so it's really more dependent on how well people adapt to that the consulting kind of lifestyle if you will or you know how to conduct um, yourself as a consultant and you know bringing your ability to be adaptive, creative, and just able to understand a customer's problems and identify a solution and work hard to, to make that happen. So at the start of this conversation, we spent a fair bit of time talking about Locana as a consultancy, as a business, and talking about the markets that you were working in and why you're working in those markets and, and you know, sort of defining those markets. What, what does it take to, to work in them? What, what are you looking for? Do you expect your consultants to, ha- to think about that as well, to have a sort of deep understanding from a business sense of why you're doing these things, why you're participating in certain markets and, and not other markets, and, and perhaps how you participate in certain markets? We definitely 
are open with all of our team members about what our strategy is. We talk about it at our periodic water coolers. We present quarterly, you know, about who we're working with, you know, what the content of a program is. So we want to make sure that all of our teammates know generally what's happening across the entire company. So we do want to make sure that people are coming to work that are interested in understanding of where we're working, who we're working for, and what problems that we're solving for those customers. So, you know, we don't have like a utilities industry 101 training so that people kind of understand generally what the business processes are that our customers are engaged in. But we do make sure that, you know, we have a lot of exposure to directly to the to the customer and directly to, you know, discussions around the work and around the problem solving that's happening. So there, there's a lot of on the job learning opportunities, but it's not necessary that somebody comes with that knowledge, although we do have some fantastic individuals that are from industry that help us generally get smarter as a group about an industry or a specific customer or specific business within a customer organization. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of it's just on the job, rolling up the sleeves, working closely with a customer and uh, yeah, just being attentive to the customer's needs and, and how they're doing their work. On the job training, some people can find that really stressful. Some people need that some people really like the idea of going somewhere and, and learning not on the job, if you know what I mean, like going to a course and learning it over there and coming back and applying it. I, I think people feel like, especially in the world of consultancy, I think it would be easy to feel like I'm too exposed here. I'm too on the hook and, and I'm out of my comfort zone when you're learning on the job. How do you balance that or how do you sort of protect against that? I guess, I mean, there has to be some, some level of risk. There has to be some level of interest. Otherwise, the work would be incredibly boring, I think. But do you understand the question? There is a balance there. There is a tension between being within my comfort zone, being able to make an accurate estimate about how long this task is going to take me, what it's going to require in terms of resources. And the only way I can do that is because I, I am experienced here. I, I've been here before. And, and this is quite different from I'm learning on the job, we're building the plane as we're flying it, I'm out of my comfort zone. There seems to be a tension there to me. Do, do you think about that? Yes. And, and as I've gotten more mature as a human being, I've, got, I've gained a better appreciation of not just throwing people into the deep end and uh, leaving it to themselves to figure out how to get to the, the edge of the pool. So one of the things that we do is we make sure that we have very thorough and robust onboarding of team members to new projects. So we're making sure that you know, everyone kind of understands what they're going to be expected to do, what tools are going to be expected to work with, what programming language, what components, what whatever the the technical bits they're going to be working with. Um, we do an adequate onboarding so that you know there's no gotchas or there's no um, you know bad surprises for a new person coming onto a project. Um, one of the things that is a bit of a challenge is that you know we are always going to be driven by what's best for a customer and what's best to satisfy their requirements. So we are a bit technology agnostic. So it's sometimes difficult to train people in advance for what technology they're going to be working with and what they're going to be implementing on. So it kind of gets back to reading the tea leaves a bit and anticipating a bit about what's coming in the industry and you know staying connected to some of the senior technologists and what they're doing on their 
free time or on their side projects because you know there is a, this kind of idea of as a consultant you kind of have to be a lot more kind of owning of your own technical development because you know we are following kind of where the market's going and trying our best to help lead the market we're not going to be necessarily sitting on our laurels and becoming a you know fill in the blank tech shop that has a very static stack of technologies that they're working with and is very much you know about perfecting how we deliver through one specific technology platform we're always going to be looking at you know what is the best for the client's needs and how do we stay on the leading edge so that we're being looked to to help our clients take the next step forward into work to where technology is going and, and helping lead them there through a great partnership i completely understand that i think oh, it'd be interesting to talk to someone because I, I think that there, there's two ways of looking at this. Some people are going to look at this and go, wow, that sounds exciting. That sounds like fast paced. That sounds dynamic. That sounds interesting. I would like to be a part of that. Other people are going to listen to this conversation and say, I don't want to be a consultant. This is it's too much. It's overwhelming. It sounds exhausting keeping up with the latest everything all the time and being constantly on that or very close to the cutting edge, the, the bleeding edge of things and making things up as we go along, you know, solving problems ad hoc as they come in it sounds like being a consultant the kind of consultant that you're talking about that you're looking for is a very specific kind of person can you tell when do you know that you you've got a good consultant someone who's going to make it someone who's going to thrive in this kind of work environment is it after the first interview or after the first three four months is there a time period or a, a situation where you say ah okay you are going to be great at this you're going to thrive here yeah. Well, f- first, I just want to clarify, like, you know, we're not a training free environment. We have a lot of training resources. Some of it's like core consulting skills around leadership, around effective communications, around how to conduct meetings. And others are curated you know, series of courses to help people um, develop, you know, new technology skills. And, and those are some of the things that, that I'm really excited to be working on. But, you know, I would say to answer your last question is that I am generally more on the intuitive side of things. So I typically have an inkling about whether a person is going to make a good consultant after, after the screening call, actually, before we've actually done a formal interview. And, you know, it's usually something's, you know, revealed itself through you know, describing their capstone project in, you know, in high school or college and, you know, how ambitious that was or, you know, demonstrating, you know, just really incredible insight into how to define a problem for a customer and you know some sort of a I did this thing and it created all this great value and generated all this excitement within my organization so some sort of personal initiative some sort of like really ambitious step forward that they took along their journey that's kind of the the, the things that I pick up on and then you know once we get to an actual interview process it's really about how creative is the person getting in answering a question and are they considering alternatives and are they thinking about well do i have to design this to cost is there a budget constraint or is there already an existing thing that i can leverage or is there something i need to integrate with so it's just kind of that insight and you know thinking about how to make the best of what constraints and opportunities that you're being given and demonstrating kind of that more mature way of approaching a problem that, um, you know, kind of I look for. Wow. 
Thank you. Thank you very much, Todd. We've come a long way in this conversation. We've covered a lot of ground and I realize I've thrown a lot of different questions at you, but I honestly think you've done an absolutely brilliant job of sort of walking, walking us through this. So first of all, we talked about what the business model looked like. There was a really sort of in-depth discussion, I thought, around the difference between mature and perhaps less mature markets and the, the approach to them. Then we moved on to talk about consultants, like what you're looking for, what skills are required, who makes it, who doesn't make it, that kind of thing. Loved the conversation. Really appreciate it. If someone listens to this and think, well, I would like to reach out to, to Todd, I'd like to, to contact Lokana, uh, I think I might be a good fit, or I have an idea, or I would like to collaborate. Where, where can they go to do that? What, what's the best channel for them to use? Well, I have a, a social media handle, which is Slindy23, and I'm on Twitter. I'm also on LinkedIn, and I have my connections open um, there on LinkedIn. Todd Slind is my, um, is my name, and I'm on LinkedIn as that. And then, um, you know, we have uh, fairly up-to-date postings on our website, locana.co. And, um, you know, sometimes we have some positions in the pipeline that don't have a, uh, a job description posted yet. So always is good to reach out, even if you don't see something that interests you there. So um, yeah, I'd encourage you just to uh, reach out to me directly um, via social media. That's the best way. That's kind of where I, I spend my, uh, my moments of free time throughout the day. Once again, Todd, I really, really appreciate your openness and, and your honesty. It's uh, been really enjoyable talking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Todd Slind, VP of Technology at Locana. There will be places in the show notes of this episode where you can catch up with Todd, either at locana.co, on Twitter, or LinkedIn. But again, check out the show notes for those links. So you will have noticed that this episode was was divided. The, the first half we talked about the business of a geospatial consultancy, how it works, how they approach new markets. And I wanted to take a couple of minutes here at the end just to suggest a little bit of further listening. So I've got a couple of episodes I'd like to recommend to you. The business of web maps, building a web-based mapping tool into a business and a business built on open source GIS. So there'll be links to all these in the show notes of this episode, but those episodes are well worth checking out if you're more interested in the business side of Geospatial. The second half of this episode was sort of devoted to the idea of what it would take to be a Geospatial consultant. What does a successful Geospatial consultant look like and what are consultancies looking for in candidates? So with that in mind, I'd like to recommend a few more episodes. The first one being hiring and being hired for Geospatial jobs, starting your own Geospatial consultancy, and getting where you want to go in your geospatial. There'll be a few other episodes in there, but I think those are a really good starting point. Again, check out the show notes of this episode. I'll put links to all these episodes I've just mentioned, as well as links to where you can connect with, with Todd. Okay, that's it for me. That's it for this episode. Really appreciate you taking the time to join me. I'll see you again soon. Bye.